Welcome to Essential NOLA Cinema, a conversation between cinephiles about the past and future of New Orleans movies. My name is Randy Mack. I'm pleased as hell to have John Byer IV, JB4, in the house. Today we're talking about Werner Herzog's uh, The Bad Lieutenant. I was shocked to notice that in the title. There's a the in there. They didn't take Sean Parker's advice, apparently, and uh, make it clean like Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, Bad Lieutenant, colon, port of call... No Coal in New Orleans, a real humdinger of a title, if there ever was one. <laughs> when I have a, a New Orleans native on, I, uh, I like to open with, where'd you go to high school, brah? Uh, I went to high school at uh, Ben Franklin, McMain right before then. I, 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 I always shoehorn McMain in there to give me a little bit more street cred, because a lot of people are like, oh, you went to Franklin, the fancy public school, which, <laughs> you know, it didn't feel like it, but uh, it definitely felt like a step above McMain. You know, all of that is is total Chinese to me. So I always <laughs> yeah. follow up with, uh, and what neighborhood did you grow up in? Uh, Lakeview. Okay. Technically, I, I I'm from Iowa, which is why I have no accent. Uh, my parents moved here when I was nine, and uh, we moved to New Orleans East. Then participated in what is typically called white flight to Lakeview. We're pretty much the stereotypical punky. New Orleans transplants in the, the early <laughs> 80s. But I consider myself a native, you know. I, I mean, I've spent most of my life here. I was, I was here for Katrina, all of it. I actually believe that if you were here through Katrina and stayed afterwards, that kind of immediately qualifies you as a, as a native. Some people disagree, but... I mean, it's a, a continuum, to be sure. There's a, I think one of the things that makes the city unique and interesting is people have a connected the city on such a strong level, there's almost as a side effect the feeling of, um, oh, there's always someone more authentic than me. It's like an authenticity, insecurity that comes oh, yeah. with having moved here. Even if you're like many generations in, you always know somebody who's even more generations older than you. Mm-hmm. My take on it is that the city has a palpable sense of, of history ongoing, that this is, a, is one of the last places in America that truly reveres its history and really prioritizes that as a culture. And that awareness of history brings along with it a bit of insecurity, um, which is how you get the expression, nolier than thou. And <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that, but it's uh, totally accurate. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I, I politically lean liberal, and uh, I have a lot of talks with people about white privilege, which is a germane topic relative to this film, so I don't feel like I'm going off-road here. <laughs> I do think that uh, one of the things I've always said is that with white privilege comes a lot of like baked in things that you don't see. A lot of what makes us privileged is invisible. And to a certain extent, if you get called racist or whatever, if you fuck up, uh, you may get you may get torched on social media or whatever. And you may think it's unreasonable, but that's collateral damage for ultimately what the the, the benefits. The benefits of white privilege far outweigh any of the grief and shit that all these other minorities are more often than not entitled to. But even if they're totally off base, you have to go, you know, this is just the reality of the situation. I have to take my lumps. And I'm that way also with NOLA NOLA authenticity. Like, you know, if someone is four generations here and they're like, bro, you ain't no nothing. It's like, you know what? I I get it. You know, like I, 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 I'm a, I'm a wonderbred white boy from Iowa. I totally understand, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a, you can it's like a you got to take it as a learning opportunity. You know? Always. 
Always. And so you're a great editor. You you helped me you. Uh, considerably on Laundry Day and, and other projects. You're a great visual effects guy, um, a filmmaker in your own right. And I was curious how what your take on the whole Hollywood South thing is since you were here before Hollywood South and got to watch it kind of boom and then bust and then maybe boom again, question mark. <laughs> and uh, where Bad Lieutenant 2 Actually, sidebar, I, um, I've been calling it Bad Lieutenant 2 for a decade and didn't realize until the rewatch that there's actually no 2 anywhere in the title. I just assumed there was a 2 there, and uh, but it's actually just called Bad Lieutenant. What they've done to differentiate it is they put a the in front of it, right. which is not in Abel Ferrara's version. But anyway, yeah, how did you uh, come along this one? Were you aware of it while it was shooting and, Trying and to all think. of that I, in 2008 when it was... This was right around the time I got hired at Horizon, which was... They'd embody all the best and worst things about the tax incentives. Uh, I, I was inadvertently at the eye of the storm because there is a company called Horizon Entertainment that was running out of WDSU uh, Fox at the time. It was run by a guy whose name I won't mention here, but um, he produced a lot of football reality television, and the the Bensons wanted him involved in the sort of reboot of The Saints, and he just happened to get engaged and hired right when the Saints made their Super Bowl run post-Katrina. Uh, and this was all based on capitalizing on the tax incentives. And they brought him in as what they thought was an authority, and he turned out to be, like so many uh, producers, really, uh, full of shit. And, <laughs> he, yeah, he ended up using it as a boondoggle and, uh, you know, cooked the books and uh, ultimately made off of millions of dollars. He would claim a $2 million budget on something that he may have spent maybe $100,000 on. But we ended up giving him something that looked more like $400,000, you know? I mean, we killed ourselves to make it awesome. But he blew it, and, uh, you know, the, the jig was up at a certain point, and he, you know, packed up and left, got handed his hat by the Bensons, and... Uh, wow. You're working for Voldemort. <laughs> More or less. I mean, if, if there's one outfit that could afford to be magnanimous and throw someone a little bit of cheddar, it was the Benson organization, yet we were doing the exact opposite. And people were totally down for it. They were so thrilled with that Super Bowl victory. And, you know, at the end of the day, he still only used it for a money grab, which is really depressing because if someone more passionate had been at the helm, like you or me or any number of people that you and I know, it would have been a totally different story. After... Horizon Entertainment imploded. Uh, another guy who was at least a New Orleans native tried to do a reality-based show here out of New Orleans. It was called Piece of Cake with the Haydells, who are a great bunch of guys. And I ended up shooting, editing, directing. I mean, I did eight episodes that, that Fox aired locally, and it stomped everybody in the Nielsen's. And, uh, you know, I mean, that was essentially one dude editing. Unfortunately, the guy who was in charge of it, sort of, he tried to sell it to Hollywood, and Hollywood, basically, the new normal is, you come up with a good idea, you show it to them, they say, great, we'll take it, we'll put our producers on it, and come up with four more ideas that we can turn into television shows, and then maybe, then you'll get an opportunity to make your own. And he wasn't having it, so they reached that stalemate that ultimately resulted in Piece of Cake being in development hell to this very day. So it was and, a creative um, control struggle, ultimately? Yeah. Here was the thing. He shot it on standard def. 
And this oh. was in 2009. And I told him, I was like, you got to do it HD, man. He wouldn't listen to me. Yeah, that's bad because, I mean, web series, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. The ship has sailed. You know, I mean, we beat uh, Cake Boss and The Tonight Show. And, you know, locally, we stomped everybody. Oh, holy cow. Because the Haydells are a draw. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. To answer your question, I, I, we went way off course here. Uh, the short version is, I, I want to say that during filming, they may have used Horizon Space. They, they would rent out some space in 32 for, like, wardrobe and, uh, like, table reads and shit. We may have crossed paths with a bad lieutenant to the bad lieutenant. Um, but I had no knowledge of it, really, until I saw it. Pretty much anything Nick Cage is in, I'm down to watch. Ever since Vampire's Kiss, I'm like, good or bad, that guy's going to give you something to remember. <laughs> um, you know, and, and of course, he, he has a, a very well-publicized love affair with New Orleans, you know. So I knew it was going to be something pretty special. And the first time I saw it, much like when I saw The Big Lebowski, I, I didn't get it all. I, I, I was so overwhelmed with certain parts of it that I kind of missed out on 50% of the subtext and everything else. And I walked out <laughs> going, I think that was good. I, you know, it's hard to tell. Because there, there are some moments in it from a film-making perspective that just uh, reeked of student film sometimes. And I'm not talking about the iguana scene. Well, we can talk <laughs> about that too. But uh, Yeah, my first watching of, of Bad Lieutenant uh, Portocol was, I was so disappointed because... I was such a fan of this guy's documentaries. I'd actually never seen a feature film of his, um, only featured documentaries. And so I thought, well, this guy, is his legend sort of precedes him in, in this way. I thought it was going to be either more crazy, more unhinged, more like European art house, like anything goes, kind of. And I thought he'd bring a documentary feel to it, like a, like a verite style kind of thing. And then... When I saw how glossy it was and how many celebrities were in it, I, it was. But it was also, as you were saying, to your point, it was disjointed in this really weird way that felt so amateurish and not in a verite, like like Harmony Korine's last couple movies have felt amateurish in a super intentional way. You know, like they felt almost like YouTube videos or something that made you feel like it was right, really right. happening. It, it, Kareen found a way of shooting amateur, an amateur style that made you truly believe what was happening in the frame, like iPhone shooting. Mm-hmm. Herzog's approach is like, I, I rewatched the opening 10 minutes uh, right before we recorded, and I just, I kept realizing that, like, oh, part of what makes this a genre is that every scene is shot with, like, a, almost a different mise-en-scene. Like, there's, like, a, there'll be one scene that's all wide angles and glossy lighting and, you know, hot key lights from the side, and then the next scene will be a fish island rotating 360 degrees through, like, a, a tiny shotgun apartment, and and then what he does with the audio is is so trippy and... It's like loosely connected, but not totally. And the the effect of jumping from these aesthetics scene to scene to scene just makes you it it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't like digest well as an experience um, in an interesting way. And on the second rewatch, I came to decide that that was probably intentional. Um, and I, I don't know if it was a successful experiment, but I felt like he was actually he was really going for something. I grokked an intentionality behind the the decisions. That might be, and this is total Monday morning quarterbacking, that <laughs> Werner Herzog was taking a tongue-in-cheek approach to the genre elements. 
like he was like he's interested in a lot of aspects of the story, mm-hmm. but not all of them. And the stuff that he was not interested in, he 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 spun as a kind of tongue in cheek uh, sort of approach to, and that's why the tone is all over the place. Totally, yeah. You know, uh, I read a bunch of interviews uh, preparing for this conversation uh, with him at the time, and he almost exclusively across the all, I don't know, six interviews I could find, only spoke of post-Katrina New Orleans and the stories he heard, and he would hear stories and then work them into the screenplay um, that weren't really there in the original script and uh, and so on, but like he never actually talks about the story, the plot, the characters, like he, all of that seems almost like pro forma. Yeah. Like he, like he, he's like, yeah, I'm working for Hollywood. I got to do this. But, uh, but I'm really interested in is, you know, he's, he talked a lot about how he directed Nicolas Cage. He said this in almost every interview to, to find the, the joy of evil in his performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so of course that's classic Herzog. Her, that's like every Herzog movie is about that somehow. The bliss of evil. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it's funny because I, I can't impersonate him, but I can hear his voice in my head when I'm reading these interviews. Oh, totally. Like yeah. that, that distinctive German thing he has comes through, but I, then I tried to imitate it. I thought, oh, this would be really funny on the pod and nope, I can't do it. So I'm not even going to try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't really either. How come nobody's made an app that you can just speak into and it'll play what you said back as Werner Herzog? Yes. Because I could then do all, I could do all these quotes from the interviews and I could play them into the mic as <laughs> Werner. We need that app, people. Somebody get on that. Even navigation would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Your fruitless quest ends in 2.4 miles or whatever. <laughs> you, you have to take a sort of uh, overall global view at it and then... You know, you get granular, which is what we do as filmmakers. And there's that one scene where Nick Cage corners the the couple coming out of the bar when he's jonesing for drugs mm-hmm. and and shakes them down. It's it's just the setup of the scene. He pulls up and the camera follows him, and they're making out against the wall like they don't notice him coming. And that that's such a that's such an eighties setup. And and a lot of his set like he does a lot of exteriors. It's just like establishing shots. And that's sort of like a, a relic from the 80s. For me, when I see that, I'm just sort of like, this is unnecessary. And, you know, in this day and age when there's so many distractions, cell phones, whatnot, it's, it's hard to fight that urge to, like, look away and go, like, all right, establishing shot. How long is he going to need this? Of course, because it's New Orleans, I'm a little bit more invested, so I pay a little more attention. Yeah. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, Absolutely. It's New, New Orleans geography is like a game you play when you watch movies shot here. You exactly. know? The fidelity... Of the geography was quite sound in the movie. There's mostly. I mean, there's actual dialogue. Oh yeah, they're they're the corner of Annunciation and General Taylor, and then they cut there, and that's actually where they are. It's like, oh, look at that. At one point, there's Burgundy and Mazant, and I ride my bike by that place almost all the like every week at least, and I look up and I think about the iguanas. So, what were the geographical fails? There were a couple that I caught. Uh, the trip outside of town when they go to Biloxi is like <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs> like ridiculous. Yeah, either that or he took a wrong turn onto the GNO bridge. Well, a lot of the driving stuff wasn't right, mm-hmm. which is totally forgivable, uh, I think. Sure. So when they're in the police station and they're looking out onto the highway, I'm thinking that's got to be Tulane and Broad, right? Like that's the courthouse and the and uh, OPP, right? Uh, I, no, I I, I want to say it's um, it looks like it's around like WDSU. Right off I-10. That's what it looks, that angle to me. You're talking about Howard Ave? I think so, yeah. 
Because is there a police station down there? Uh, that that's the question. Because I was looking out those windows during. The, it's the early scenes where mm-hmm. he comes in and Val Kilmer is interrogating this guy, and he's had him in there for hours, you know. Yeah. And then he interrupts the interrogation, chases him out, says you got to be nice to him, and right? Back inside, but it's clearly lit in order to expose what's going on out the windows. Oh. I actually f- found that this a recurring motif during the film is. Uh, Herzog was really interested in what's going on outside windows, and he he lit everything to amplify that in the frame so that there's just kind of borderline distracting background stuff. In the case of the scene I'm talking about, it's probably 15 minutes in. It's a really weird-looking interchange where there's two levels of highway crisscrossing, and they're not crisscrossing at a perfect angle. And my thought was, like, maybe that's the Broad Street Bridge going over the interstate at the, where the Crescent City connection merges. It could be. But then I'm like, but that, I don't think that's a police station. I think that's the courthouse. There is a police station there. There is. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, my girlfriend works at OPP, so I drop her off there every day, or I used to. Now she has her own car. <laughs> Friends in high places. The, the one other sort of, like, geographical distortion was, and this is basic, but Eva Mendes, her, the, the exterior of her apartment is in Lee Circle, but she's oh, yeah, right yeah. across from the World Trade Center, the building formerly known as. I was like... Yeah, yeah, that's totally true, yeah. I was using the views out her windows to figure out what Again, building there, and I, I decided they were in a hotel, and they were probably in either the Lowe's or the Harrah's hotels. Probably, yeah. Because exactly. you can see the World Trade Center from one side, and then out the other, you could see the top of Harrah's Casino, Yeah, you know, looking the other way. But you're right. Every time he goes to the lobby and out to the street, he's in Lee Circle. Yeah. So it was, it was probably a thing of... Lee Circle is much more photographic, mm-hmm. you know, just more visually kind of distinct, so... They were probably just like, let's forget this ugly pointer street. Yeah. It's probably the most important street in the city that almost never shows up in movies. It's, it's a good point. so bland. Yeah. This is sort of the fun shit that we get to do. We get to get that granular about. I think overall, I think uh, that movie does a really good job of capturing certainly the spirit of the city at that time. Better than a lot of other films I've watched. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're forgivable infractions you know it's it's not it's not distracting certainly not to anybody who's never been to the city you know yeah the whole role of katrina in the film is it's a head scratcher in a couple ways yeah i assume herzog was trying to talk about some of the injustices and things Uh, in the interviews he talks about how he was the screenplay came to him through edward r pressman who is a, a film producer he's now almost 80 uh, he's an OG, kind of like 70s and 80s guy. He produced Abel Ferreira's Bad Lieutenant originally. Okay. How Pressman got the screenplay is, is is a total mystery to me. <laughs> but you were talking about how a lot of the film feels like a bad 80s cop TV mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, the screenwriter is a Steve Bochco guy who oh. only has one feature film credit. It's this movie we're talking about. And uh, all his other credits are Steve Bochco TV shows, including L.A. Law and Cop Rock. <laughs> you know, you answered a lot of questions because I, I didn't get a chance to research that, but I was wondering, I was like, what else has this guy written? Because it's a very bizarre film, and uh, ultimately, I liked it. I really liked Cage's performance. I felt like there were some things that were a little too on the nose, but it, it certainly was taking risks. I mean, the imaginary iguanas seemed like completely out of left field, even though there's this sort of prevalent uh, motif of, of it, like animals and wildlife. Yeah. Especially reptilian. I mean, it opens with a shot of a snake, you know? So Yeah, there's like four reptiles that I can think of off the top of my head. And the opening shot is a snake in the water. 
you go to the dead alligator on the side of the road in the car accident yep. scene, you have the iguanas thing, and you have the goldfish in the bowl yeah. at the at the site of the of the massacre. Herzog isn't just like throwing these things in on the side. He he puts them in the foreground and he stops the movie cold for you to appreciate these these animals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Most, you know, the, the most egregious example being, of course, when, and apparently uh, he was insistent enough on this that he was comfortable being included as the person who was the cinematographer specifically for that GoPro iguana footage, uh, during which apparently he got bit. Yes. Uh, and you can see that footage. Uh, and, but, but, you know, at the same time, it's like, what happens in that scene otherwise? You know, I, I don't know, like... I don't know what was supposed to happen prior to those iguanas being there, but that it definitely added an element in which if you're going to like it, you're really going to like it. You know what I'm saying? That's the point at which that movie dares you to walk away. Yeah, no, absolutely. The thing about the, the iguana scene that really put it over the top, because I remember my first viewing, like I said, I was quite disappointed, and I thought... Herzog had just fucked off for the most part, and, and now I now I have a different opinion. But like I remember, as I was watching the film, thinking like this needs to be either less crazy or more crazy because right now it's in this middle ground that doesn't quite work for me. That's legit, actually. That is legit, and so because it does, it it is pretty conventional for something that a guy that did Grizzly Man, <laughs> yeah, or Fitzcarraldo or whatever, you know, right? So so basically, when we got to the iguana scene, I was like, all right, more wacky wackiness. But then that R&B track comes in. When the music comes in and suddenly Cage's mood goes from like super dour to super happy and this beautiful R&B ballads playing and, and they just showing the iguanas just like looking around and stuff. And I just thought, okay, now, now this is where I wish the movie would stay in. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this, that kind of, to really make a meal out of this moment. But, like, again, the way he uses audio throughout the film is, is mostly disjointed and jarring. And so it all... I mean, maybe it's supposed to reproduce the mindset of a drug addict or, or whatever. That character is taking a lot of uppers and downers, sometimes mm -hmm. at the same time. So I guess it would be disjointed. But, like, Vernog... Uh, Vernog. Uh, <laughs> Herzog has said in his interviews that he really doesn't like drug culture, and he took a lot of the drugs out of the screenplay. He didn't want to glamorize drugs, he just wanted to use them where it was necessary to establish a mood or a story point. The script was originally set in New York City, which makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Nick Cage had been talking about working together, so when he was c contemplating the script and he was contemplating Cage, he, he called them up and he said, I've got this bad lieutenant thing, but I think it's not a really a bad lieutenant movie. We'll get that name off there. Don't worry about it. Which, he, of course, he failed to do. But he and Cage were so into each other. I wonder if that helped the marketing of it. I, I would say it probably did. It did. It, you're, you're dead on. Uh, the idea of moving it to New Orleans was an idea that both Nick Cage and Werner Herzog had at the same time, basically. And then the producers were super into it because of the tax credits. So they were like... Oh, this is fantastic. Plus, it's a new wrinkle. It spins. It, it'll differentiate it from the Abel Ferrara film. And it was Port of Call New Orleans was Werner's idea for a title. And so what the producers did, because they had the sequel rights, or remake rights, or whatever it was, mm -hmm. they just combined the two. That's why there's like three titles worth of title on this film. Yeah, it's really bizarre. It makes sense, because like you said, uh, Nicolas Cage has a long history with the city. Have you seen his first directorial effort? Sonny? I have not. With James Franco? No. S-O-N-N-Y? Like Sonny Corleone? James Franco plays a male prostitute who, like, Whoa. grows up 
his mom is a, a prostitute. He grows up as a gigolo, basically. Huh, okay. And, and it's all set in New Orleans. But it doesn't have, like, much to do with New Orleans. It was just sort of set here. It's, it's a very weird movie. It's very, like, artsy and experimental. It's a little like Bad Lieutenant 2 in that it's neither fish nor fowl. But it's an interesting movie, and it uses a lot of Rush in the soundtrack. Which what? Is, okay. Again, not very <laughs> New Orleans. But. Yeah, that sounds really weird. He hasn't directed much since. I think he made one other feature. So when Herzog came down here, he tried to get permission from the NOPD to approve the screenplay. <laughs> and he says he got permission on the first try. He said that the, the NOPD loved the script. Which is insane. <laughs> he has nothing but nice things to say about the NOPD in his uh, interviews. He goes out of his way to say, you know, the rest of the NOPD are ex- exemplary members of their communities. This is not supposed to stand for the entire police department, etc. Which I thought was very interestingly, what's the word, diplomatic of yeah. Werner, Werner, I have no fucks to give Herzog. You know? I know. I guess, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, he was informed by empathy of what we just went through. And they, you know, I, I'm one degree of separation away from Policardo, the guy who ended up killing himself on duty. So, you know, there was a lot of PTSD that they were struggling with. So I'm sure he didn't want to contribute to that. But, uh, I, you know, what, what I found interesting structurally about the story was that Cage... I read a number of articles that had interesting takes on it as a referendum on New Orleans, which and, and Katrina, which I, I, I sort of kind of see, but for me, it was more that every time he tried to do something good or, you know, outside of himself, he it's, it's a no good deed goes unpunished thing, you know? I mean, it opens with him essentially doing something quasi-heroic, and messing himself up permanently for it, yeah. Which I thought was an interesting starting point, and it wasn't, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't something, it, it wasn't anything that was fetishized. Like you didn't see, you know, flashes of red and close up of his gritted teeth and him screaming and yelling and howling and anything that you know somebody a little bit more over the top, like even David Fincher may have done. You know, it was just jump, cut, a couple of audio clips. And then, you know, he's essentially stuck with a prescription that he didn't want. And that was the other thing I thought was interesting and very of its time. Like, this is going to date it in a good and bad way, but the whole opiate crisis. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it was right there starting when it came out. And in some ways, it was uh, sort of prescient that way. Knowing what we know now, it was kind of interesting to look at it through that lens as a guy who was essentially getting bottlenecked into a modality he didn't want. And it was all based on a mistake he made trying to help someone out, you know? I thought that was interesting. No, you're right. It, it, I'm thinking about that because that, there's a lot to, to unpack there. There's You have August 2005 is Hurricane Katrina. The flooding, immediately the evacuation of the city, 2006, 2007, 2008, the screenplay gets to Herzog, and they announce it in Variety with Nicolas Cage attached. They put it together, they decide to shoot in New Orleans, they shoot in New Orleans in late 2008, comes out in 2009, it plays Venice, and so forth. So you're looking at a, a, a period piece, the title card says six months after Katrina, yeah. which puts it in February of 07? Right around there, yeah. You know, it's like the recent, it's recent history period film. The thing about Katrina films, I've noticed, 
Uh, obviously, just this is just my take on it. But the ones that do the worst are the ones that try to capture the most of it. You know what I mean? Like the ones that really try to get every detail end up just co- covering everything very superficially. Mm-hmm. Whereas the most yeah. effective ones tend to really focus on something uh, small, like a neighborhood or a family yeah. or, or whatever. And for some reason, it's more palpable the extent of devastation when you go in narrowly. And Katrina informs so much of the the story, but it's not a part of the plot or anything. It's not really. I think if a New Orleans native had done a pass on the screenplay, there would have been a lot more... The, the plot involves them trying to find big fate, a drug dealer who they think is responsible for these murders. And so what they're doing is they're rounding up people off the street from the neighborhood and then leaning on them until they spill some information that can get them to the next guy, who can get them to the next guy, who can get them to big fate. And so it's an incredibly like episodic plot in that sense where you're just going through like side characters as you get closer and closer to the kingpin. But... They, they talk a lot about who's out on parole, who's just been released from jail and stuff. But in February of 2007, like, I don't think those would have been the real conversations. I think it would have been no. like, who's in town, whose family is still here, who's come back, who hasn't come back, you know. That's what they attempted with Treme and, you know, with mixed results, I'll, to be diplomatic in my end, <laughs> I... Not my favorite thing. I I mean, I was expecting, honestly, I was expecting The Wire in post-Katrina New Orleans, so I was expecting all that to be a little bit more peripheral in the backdrop, but I just thought it would add such a unique element to it, you know? I mean, shit, he could have called it The Wire New Orleans, (laughs) you know? And that would have been fucking great. But that's not what it was, and that's not what he wanted to do. And, like, I, as a New Orleanian, appreciate and admire the love letter to the city, but it's, like, all over the fucking place and not terribly riveting viewing yeah. you know not for me anyway Treme is a love it or hate it show in this city I most filmmakers I know are have a nuanced mm-hmm. kind of a checklist of like it did these things well it did these things not so well it totally beefed on this issue but it kicked it out of the park with that issue you know whereas right I've run into people in the city who I guess they've either bonded over it or they were involved or especially there are a couple of musicians I know who got paid really really well yeah. Basically, they love the economic impact the show had, and they don't really talk much about the substance of what was yeah, on the screen totally. or the storylines or the characters or anything. You know, I have a nuanced view, too. I, I just think that what killed the show fundamentally was its timeline. Its narrative timeline was that every year was going to follow the calendar year, mm-hmm. and that is a like such a literal approach to, to New Orleans time that doesn't really capture the experience of New Orleans time, which is extremely slow and then fast and then slow and then you know time is its own unique energy here that does not follow the calendar whatsoever and a year can feel like a month and an hour can feel like a day and vice versa that's what laundry day is about is what you're talking about well yeah if you yeah yeah <laughs> laundry day was partly inspired as a reaction to the use of time in Treme. oh wow okay yeah the polysubjectivity thing comes from a number of movies including election and so forth, where you're, you're spending time in people's heads and seeing that one person's king is another person's court jester and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But the sense that an average day can be a, like a week's worth of events is something that I noticed uh, probably from my first week in New Orleans. Uh, probably the day I went to do the laundry and saw that bar fight break out in Checkpoint Charlie's mm-hmm. was um, <laughs> around the time I started to realize like there's epics to be written sure. about simply, you know, trying to get an errand done right, right. in the city. <laughs> so, yeah, so in that sense, I guess Treme was sort of doomed to fail, certainly from our perspectives anyway. Maybe B- Bad Lieutenant New Orleans 
came closer to what I was expecting from David Simon than what he gave us. That's really interesting. You know? Yeah, it's definitely got a post-traumatic yeah. flavor. But it's only in... It's like Nicolas Cage is carrying that that post-traumatic quality single-handedly because you don't really see it in any of the other characters. Like, the other cops are just going about their business. They're, everyone seems fine for the most part. Like, right. you don't see anyone else popping pills or, like, you know, working triple shifts and stuff. True. Herzog, in interviews, talks about how police were telling him stories. They would just disappear. Like, half the force disappeared or... A non-zero number of police officers just simply vanished yeah. um, because they just didn't want to be here and deal with it. And so that required the rest of the police to do triple duty and so right. on and, and uh, in horrible conditions. And Herzog talks about how police officers would evacuate by simply stealing cars from dealerships. Yeah. Just go in the lot and grab a car and flee town. And it's, he worked that into the opening scene when Val Kilmer and Nicolas Cage walk into the locker room and they're looking for... Duffy. It's a it's a bad bit of dialogue because I didn't understand it until I read the interview with Herzog after the fact. But he says, yeah, Duffy grabbed the car from the lot and left town. I was like, oh, he grabbed a squad car from the police lot is where I, what I interpreted that. But Herzog's referring to actually stealing a privately owned vehicle from a car dealership and and bailing on the on the duties. But it, it's said so fast and so quickly and in such a bizarre context where you don't even have time to absorb it. Uh, yeah. But it's interesting that he worked a lot of stuff like that in, including, yeah. like, the the whole gator flipping a car car accident. He says he got out of the newspaper. Oh, wow, okay. So he was doing his best in a way, but I think he wasn't interested in Katrina per se as a specific tragedy. He was more interested in the general sense of what does tragedy do to a person. Because Werner, Werner's got that galaxy brain, like, what is human nature? What is the sure. what is the uh, essence of to be a man or whatever? You can understand it because he's such an abstract thinker yeah. that, that, he, that he wouldn't be necessarily going into shit like, you know, FEMA and stuff like that, per se. But it's also, I don't know, I think he could have done better with it, too, you know, especially on the, on the, in the writing of it. Yeah. There are some things that were too on the nose for me. For, for one thing, like the fact that he... That he had his gun always, like, hanging out from his cock is, like, a little too on the nose for me. Like, all right, I get it. And then he goes, like, what's a man without his gun? I was like, if you hadn't had figured that out, that was important to him. Oh, that's a great example of what I would call the tongue-in-cheek cop parody component to the film, where he seemed to be, like, making fun of these things. Yeah, totally. Did you see that gun? That's a... At one point, he actually calls it, a, like, they took my forty-four Magnum. And it's yeah. like, first of all, cops don't carry forty-four Magnum. Right, exactly. Second of all, the, ba- <laughs> the barrel of that gun is right out of the TV show Sledgehammer. It, yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> totally, yes. It's a parody prop. It's 30 Harry. It's, it is. It is. Which, which is fine. I mean, it, it was either here nor there for me. I was just sort of like, wow, that's on the nose. <laughs> the thing I liked least about the film the first time, and I still don't, don't like, is the... Werner was trying to show a man in pain who's struggling with X, Y, and Z. He he glamorized the shit out of it. Like, because he's got every woman throwing themselves at him. The guy's, like, doing drugs with immunity. He, he mm-hmm. He's... Uh, impunity, rather. He's, like... He's basically getting away with murder. Yeah. And you kind of barely see the suffering. You just, yeah. you just see this guy with, like... He's got money and girls, and, okay, he's got money problems. But he's got, like, big yeah. wallet problems, first world problems. Like, it's... Oh, yeah. He's got, like, the lamest problems. And then when yeah. he shit really starts to, like... The sharks really are circling. He loses his badge, he, and he's super in debt, and he's now trying to work with all these gangsters. 
and there's an actual sense of like menace and something bad's going to happen, mm-hmm. the movie kind of yanks the rug out and tacks on this really strange coda where everything is suddenly right. There's like that one scene in the police department where all his problems are solved in a single scene. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing you know, they fast forward a few months and his girlfriend is clean and his parents are clean and she's pregnant and they're buying a home in the suburbs together and like okay what like what the hell is this <laughs> like and then yep he then pulls the rug out from under that by then immediately going to the redux of the scene outside the chop house where he rifles to two club kids mm-hmm. which I, I had to do a compare and contrast i I held the t- frames of those two scenes next to each other to make sure it wasn't mm-hmm. the same people. It's and not. it's not, but it's so fucking close. They're like in the same wardrobe, it's lit the exact same way. They must have shot it at the same time. Yeah. So the question then, it leaves you, it's almost like the end of the Florida Project. You're, you're left with, was that a real uh-huh. thing or was that a wishful hallucination That's legit. You know, kind of thing? I feel like it was legit, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, it reminds me of the second thing that I thought was too on the nose, was this whole monologue about burying the spoon in the backyard. It's, you know, it's the silver spoon metaphor. and <laughs> Literally. You know, like I said, that's why I think it's a, yeah, it's, like, it's a referendum on white privilege, because he gets away with all the shit. Mm. You know what I mean? What he decides are virtues versus side quests worth going on, for example, going all the way to Biloxi. Right. With a dog. He's... With a, and a witness. Well, yeah, with the witness and the dog. The whole point of is that he's trying to get rid of the dog, yeah. and no one will look after the dog. And he's he's so mean, and he's so a he's so unfeeling yeah. toward these human beings. Yeah, torturing that old lady and everything. Yet there's a stray dog that he can't yeah. bear to like just tie it to a pole and put a sign on saying someone please adopt me or whatever. You know, like mm-hmm. it's a it's a weird thing. And so when I rewatched it, I was trying to figure out like, is this a fundamentally good character who? has just been, like, distorted by his circumstances. Right. But there's no point in the beginning of the movie where you show him... You see him being good at police work, and you do see him save the guy in the flooded jail. Yeah. Which, you know, it comes as a surprise because he's sort of, like, mocking the guy and torturing him, and then eventually he's like, all right, fuck it, you know, I'll <laughs> save him. Basically, you can see that his attitude is already terrible. Like, right. it, about 30 seconds before he saves that guy in the flooded jail, they're in the locker room looking for Duffy, they open his thing, they find the photographs right. of his of right. Duffy's wife, and he decides to keep the things. Kilmer says, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to have to answer to him for this. And he goes, fuck yeah. Duffy, no, fuck him. He starts screaming in, in Kilmer's face. So mm-hmm. you feel like he's already traumatized or already like a loose cannon, hothead, selfish, you know, guy who's just going to take advantage of his position for whatever he wants. So you're like, well, if that's the, where the guy's baseline was, then obviously this drug addiction is going to make it worse. They never talk about, like, how long he's been on the force. They do show him achieve several ranks of of advancement. He goes from sergeant to lieutenant very early in the film, and then at the end of the film he goes lieutenant to captain. Mm -hmm. Was this guy always unhinged? Did Katrina make him unhinged? Was it being in the force so long? Or or is this guy just, like, a bad egg in that sense? There's no clear examination of of where this guy came from. You only see him in this, this sort of window of time. Yeah. Maybe it's supposed to be like the guys um, when you when you hit your nader, your 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 bottom. Oh, I should know this from listening to all those Mark Maron podcasts. <laughs> and the bottom is when you have the moment. Well, of clarity I mean, he's doing more drugs, and the, where you realize you need to get help. And yeah, and I feel like maybe this is the story of a person hitting their bottom and coming out. But then you see him like scoring drugs off those kids at the end, 
And then what is he doing in that hotel room in the in the penultimate scene? You know, where Nick Gomez comes in and Well, I mean he's just doing more drugs and But he's like just staring in his face. He's just zoned out. So it's like are we supposed to understand he's achieved everything he's wanted and yet it's not fulfilling. He's still in a prison, and therefore he is rescuing him from his prison by bringing him to the uh, aquarium after hours, which is the other example of animals in it. Um, that almost feels like an epilogue. That scene seems like a deliberate, almost uh, farcical parody of Bad Lieutenant. Like, you think <laughs> this is going to be that Bad Lieutenant, it's going to be the exact opposite of it. It's a weird swerve, right? And then... This whole other part, which is a, you know, philosophically dense enough, you could probably make a whole movie about that. In fact, the entire movies have been made about the prison of a day-to-day life and feeling trapped and you know, doing something to sabotage it just to mix it up. And that's just like the epilogue of the movie. It's like three minutes. It's like a second epilogue, too, though. No. It's such a weird bit of... I guess it's editing, you know? It I is. I mean, I guess that's it the is. other... That's, that's kind of been underlying so much of our conversation about why the film so feels so tonally disjointed and, and camera work disjointed and, and scene-to-scene, scene to scene. It's, it's, there's something about the editing clearly been designed in post... I mean, there are ways to smooth out. You would know as a, as, a, as a filmmaker and an editor that your director may walk off in the middle and you have to, you know, shoot footage to match other footage. There are ways to smooth out the wrinkles in scene-to-scene flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, music's one great tool. Insert shots, establishing style. There's all kinds of filmmaking tricks to, to make flow from scene-to-scene natural. And Werner Herzog was clearly not interested in that. In, edit, in the editing of this film. He, exactly. It's clearly there to make you whiplash. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would, um, I would is, dare this say... This is a fascinating choice. Yeah, I would dare say that the sort of jagged topography is part of what he likes about it, you know? Um, I, you know, he certainly had the means by which to smooth some of those edges, but I feel like that was a choice n- n- evidenced no more prominently than, the again, the iguana scene. I mean, that's a fucking GoPro shot. I was like, that is... That is the most jarring aesthetic (laughs) gear shift, probably cinematically ever, certainly for a cop noir film that I've ever fucking seen. Do you agree? I mean, do you feel like it puts you in Cage's head in that moment? Well, because that was my interpretation. Of course, that's that's the idea. But I mean, that's the only time he uses the same thing for the alligator that's watching his animatronic buddies' guts all over the place. And that's not supposed to be, like, mm. that just seems like an aesthetic choice. So it could be seen as, a, like, a, a bit of a confusing thing. I was with it the whole time. Incidentally, side note here, Feruja Balk looked great, and I don't know why she's not a lot busier. Like, independent of the fact yeah. that she looked fantastic, uh, she was great in the yeah. part, you know? Like, uh, what the hell happened to her, man? She needs to be busier. No, that's true. I recently watched her first movie, uh, you know, she was a child actor. Okay. The um, Milos Forman film, Valmont, oh, Valmont which is a, yeah. a loose adaptation, according to the opening credits, of, of Dangerous Liaison. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, it came out about a year after the 80s Dangerous Liaison with John Malkovich and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. Feruza plays the Uma Thurman role. Oh, okay. But the difference is, in the 80s adaptation... Uma Thurman's probably 20-something, and Fariza was probably 14. Wow. Which is exactly what the, would have been you know, appropriate for the era. Yeah. Because that's when people got married back then. It's, it's one of those movies where you keep thinking, like, oh, this is like a genuine star. She, you know, she, she's in, like, Almost Famous, which is in 2000, 
she should have had, if there was any justice, a kind of Parker Posey type career. I think there was a, a couple other really good performances in the film. Uh, I really liked Vondi Curtis Hall. He's Certainly, yeah. always like one of my favorites. And then Lance Nichols, New Orleans own Lance Nichols showed up to throw them out of the office. He sure did. Which was great. Also, uh, Jeremy Johnson, who, who uh, sadly died from a freak undertow accident in Florida. Oh. But he is the brother of Sean Johnson, who's like a, a yoga master in New Orleans, Wild Lotus Yoga. He played one of the internal affairs cops that started busting Nicolas Cage's chops when he tried to choke out the old lady. <laughs> yeah, the guys would take his badge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The guys would take his badge and gun. Uh, he's the younger dude. Uh, he was great. I was like, shit, I would have used him more if I had known he was that good an actor. Laundry Day's Carrie Cahill was in there for a couple scenes. Yes, I saw her. Yeah, she, uh, she was uh, the heroine. Yeah, she dropped the heroin off in the at the yeah, evidence locker room or whatever, and then and then later they're like, wait, there was only how much in that bag? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot of local faces in there. It was nice. Yeah, it's very cool. Trey Vervant. So uh, to step back, I, I created the show to try to give people inspiration for creating new work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to look at films from the past with an eye toward how they could learn from it or take lessons from it or apply it to material moving forward. Um, I think what this film does really well is it. if you look at the components of Nicolas Cage's character's world, he's got bookies. They're, they're sort of ambiguously mafia, but they're clearly like, you know, guys who will break your kneecaps with impunity. And you've got cops, both corrupt and not corrupt. And basically you have a theme of corruption going through all of the people he's working with. Mm-hmm. Even the um, African-American people he encounters have various degrees of purity or impurity For sure. uh, along the way. And that, se- that seems like a in- really interesting theme you could explore in a lot of different contexts. You take it out of the police force, you could, you could talk about a small business, uh, like a grocer or a, a corner shop owner who's like, trying to keep his business going in a, in a rough community, say. And okay. he's got their alcohol distributors who need to supply the bar and you've got the video poker people you have bartenders who <laughs> vary degrees of trustworthiness you have local patrons and, and tourists and it's it, there's it's like i look at bad lieutenant ab- abstractly as a as a man in a maelstrom kind of story and so you can apply the manner in a maelstrom mm-hmm. it could be a woman obviously you know you, you could it could be a teacher it could be um, a bus driver it could be any number of things even a even a bartender, if you shift the perspective of a, of a bar from the owner to the bartender, you could have a, a really interesting story where there's a, a person caught in the middle. You, you know, you could have uh, any number of those street performers, um, you know, kind of hustling, traveling kids. There's, there, it could have, this whole person in a maelstrom paradigm can apply to people from all walks of life and in all kinds of contexts. So I thought that was that was an interesting thing that uh, a filmmaker could, could consider when sitting sure. down to write during the, the pandemic when we can't actually shoot anything. What I found particularly interesting and uh, singular about the film is um, the anti-hero is sort of in vogue now. I mean, Breaking Bad sort of like the gold standard. What I thought was interesting is, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, starting off... The guy was, he's a broken guy from the drop. You know what I mean? He's definitely, if not corrupt, uh, certainly demonstrating a certain degree of devil-may-care attitude from the outset. Getting back to what I said earlier, I do think that it really does explore 
the the highs and lows of the tunnel vision that comes with white privilege. You know, because there there's a virtuous he's ultimately inspired to do good things by people of color in the film. But uh, at the end of the day, he's a hostage to his own wants and desires and frustrations. It's, I mean, I, the, the closest film I can come, uh, now that I'm saying it out loud, is Clockwork Orange. You know? Uh. A weird anti-hero who essentially gets away with a lot of fucked up shit, and at the end you sort of are still kind of sort of rooting for him. You know? Or you don't hate him. That film walks a razor's edge in terms of character relatability. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I think there's there's something really interesting, and it's like almost becomes a hollow mirrors the more I think about it in a way. There is a fundamental flaw to the mm-hmm. Bad Lieutenant 2, which is the privileged male, white male perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm try, I, It's easy to picture Herzog and Cage on set saying, like, this is an African-American majority city. We're shooting here in Central City on relocations that have been destroyed by the storm in the middle of this rebuilding effort. Uh, you know, this is about the poison of of white privilege. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're still making a movie that, that ultimately is a kind of white privilege, white perspective movie. I would love someday to see a movie where you have a uh, an African-American main character who's a drug dealer who's not treated as a tragedy, you know? Where he's, he's simply a... Right. You know, he's a pragmatist working the the white privilege of the drug culture here, the the tourists who come to party and the, the locals and the service industry who like to unwind with a bag of Coke after work or whatever. And he sees it as simply economic transference, you know, like just moving the money from where there's a lot of it to where there's a little of it. And, you know, the Exhibits character, uh, Big Fate, he's fascinatingly clear-headed and straightforward mm-hmm. about everything, you know? He is. He's, he's not portrayed as a psychopath. He's not unbalanced. He's very clear-eyed. He calls bullshit when he sees it, but he's articulate, and he seems very straightforward. He, he's not a bullshitter and, and so on. What happens to him? Like, what, what happened? Like, he gets arrested, but nothing, like, you, you'd think he has a drop on Cage with all the collaboration they'd done, and yet... I mean, I don't think he got murdered. No, he tells him, remember, he puts his DNA at the crime scene, he, by the lucky crack pipe thing? Yeah. Takes the lucky crack pipe and he puts it back at the crime scene, and now his DNA is at the Right, thing. and he can't say, but they were there to kill him. Like, there, there, there was a weird little loophole there that actually probably makes it more arguably a dream sequence. But, uh, <laughs> but, but at the same time, it also, you know, works nicely with the whole notion of, yeah, he got away with it because they're not going to believe a black drug dealer. You know, just like that other guy he interrogates. Right. Where he's like, you smoked a joint right in front of me. And he's like, oh, but they're not going to believe me. It's your word over mine, and they're going to take your word every time. Right. So I just answered my own question. <laughs> I like that scene a lot because it's not only that it's his word against his, but that the cops know he's not lying about that like the, the cops know how bad cage's character yeah, is exactly and they're still just going to go along with it because it's, they don't you know, care code blue you know and all that it's uh it's kind of depressing but i would totally i, I yeah. don't know I, I my experience with the police in the city is is that they'll often when busting up a scene they'll, they're coming into an aftermath where you have a lot of drunk people a lot of stone people a lot of people who've been pushed to the point of violence and they're walking into this aftermath they're, it's not necessarily thinking about, it like, oh, let's find clues and solve a crime here. The cops are just looking around for who's the big asshole here. Who's, like, who's the guy, like, escalating and pushing everything. And so 
I find that their approach to crime is super... It's somewhere between neighborhood policing and, like, the worst in, incompetency ever, depending <laughs> on, on any given moment in which cop you get. The arbitrariness, it, it's so much about who is in that uniform yeah. on any given moment, on any given night. And I, there's an interesting nuance to it. I'd, I'd love to see a film, you know, where you have a cop who understands there's drug dealing but understands there's a difference between malevolent drug dealers and benevolent drug dealers and can make those distinctions you know and i mean that's an interesting thing or an nopd officer who's african-american and grew up here Mm -hmm. and has friends and family on both sides of the law for instance would be a really interesting story to tell i just i'm just kind of tired of these these white gazes at new orleans basically kind of fall into the blacks as criminals and the blacks as you know tragedy kind of right thing. like the, the feeling is oh look black people we should feel so sorry for them all the time they never show the the joy of the african-american experience here or the nuance of it or, or the you hardly ever see their side of anything and and when you, when you do see the joy the positivity it's always a second line <laughs> it's always yeah. Mardi Gras or dancing or whatever true it's just so one note and there's just so many more New Orleans stories to tell that would benefit from a fresh perspective. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. And I mean, to a certain extent, we're still waiting on that, you know. So maybe that's the takeaway. I, I find a hard time getting inspired if I don't have anything to contribute that's unique and singular, you know. Otherwise, why do it again, right? So yeah, there's a moment actually that I loved, one of my favorite moments, and we really didn't even get a chance to talk about that. But when he, uh, when, when. Uh, Nick, when, when they surround a house and then Nick Cage goes through the neighbors around and then gets the guy, just gets the sneak on the guy and he walks out and he goes, I love it. I love it. Yeah. It just seemed like such a genuine of the moment thing that, uh, you know, th- there are a lot of moments like that in the film that I have to like doff the cap to, you know, uh, way more than the disappointing ones. Yeah, no, I, I like that moment a lot too for a number of reasons. It shows that he's a good cop. I mean, he we, we've seen him yeah. be a good cop on a couple of occasions, like the interrogation scene where he gets the information out of the guy simply by talking to him as a person instead of smacking him around right. like Val Kilmer was doing. And you see him be a good cop again in that sense because the cops are about to run in with their, all their guns going and he gets them without a shot fired, you yep, know? Yep, 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 exactly. When he goes through the house, he drops that line to the the young lady who's lets him in. He's like, he's like what are you doing here? Like, and he's like, oh, I need to see the other side of this apartment. She says, why? And he says, uh, unpaid rent or something. Yeah, he's right. Like he's, like he's working for the landlord. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and then he helps himself to a bag of weed on the kitchen table. Yeah, exactly. A, I, w- I would love to take that scene and just build out a whole movie around that aesthetic and that kind of storytelling logic and, and the surprise of it and sure. the idea that, like, ideally there's a way for the police to have a relationship with their community that is just not so hostile, that, that where the police don't feel like an invasion or a, or a colonializing exterior force there to, like, hold the community down. That's a Netflix series right there. Like, I mean, that that theme alone is... Well, that's that's what Treme could have been. Could have been, yeah. That's the wire in New Orleans. Yes! You know? Yes! To really break it all down, you know? Dare to dream someday. We have to start a campaign with David Simon. Come on, man. Yeah. He he has a new HBO series, The Plot Against America, which takes place in the... 30s, I want to say. Yeah. So maybe maybe he's ready for another contemporary series. I guess so, man. I like. I'm not. I like. It's hard for me to get in the headspace to even watch that because it's scab picking and all the shit that we're dealing with right now and the federal government and it's just everything is so disruptive and cantankerous that like. <laughs> 
I mean, I've actually been welcoming more escapist fare or more granular character-based fare. Like, stuff that tries to deal with moral complexities of the anti-hero, I'm sort of like, over. Yeah. Which is why, I like, this movie surprised me. I, like, really enjoyed watching it a second time. You know, hashtag the darkest timeline. I think right? you're not alone in wanting something a little lighter because the headlines and the social medias are out of control with the darkness right now it is this is one of those make or break years i think for the american culture like if if, uh, we don't come out of this year in a better place Mm -hmm. especially with the election in november yep then i think for a lot of people this country is effectively over yeah and and like it's 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 incredibly difficult to you know you you don't want to get too hyperbolic right you know, I mean, I, I've been to therapy on and off, and, you know, the first thing you do is, is you fixate on something that's outside of your own sphere, because it's easier to spin off conspiracy theories and shit on stuff that you have no direct hand in. But it's, it's, it's very difficult to figure out what those boundaries even are and not have a complete meltdown. It's, it's very difficult not to convey a sense of urgency to somebody who says something that you think is stupid, you know? Yeah, especially if what they say is reflecting an opinion held in a high office that you think is actively destroying the fabric of the country. Uh, well, I yeah, I just, I mean... Because that's what I've been observing, that the, the political flare-ups I've, see, I've been seeing on social media have a lot to do with people transferring their anxiety about the federal government and now state governments, too, in this pandemic time, transferring those those feelings onto individual people yeah, because they feel like they're parroting or they're not listening or they represent the enemy or, or whatever. It's human nature, obviously, but the pandemic, it it's made the isolation worse because we're all having to communicate now indirectly. Right. Mediated interaction, which is terrible for interpretation and terrible for empathy. It is. I don't know. It's like trying to put one shoe on while running a race while on fire. <laughs> That's as good a metaphor as I've ever heard. So, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, I really love talking to you about this movie. Yeah, man. Tell me uh, what you're working on these days. You have a podcast called Popcorn, Piss, and Vinegar that I, I love. I've Thank you. I've been uh, lucky enough to be a guest on it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to start that back up pretty soon. There's been a lot of really interesting things outside of the New Orleans cinema fair that I've uh, discovered and enjoyed. There, there is a surge of really like big budget stuff that they're like, well, fuck it. We're going to be the, the trailblazers on getting our box office from video on demand. And now, you know, Marvel and all of the, the big tent poles are now holding off on their release date until things are a little bit more back to normal. And so now, all the new movies are all these independents where the poster art is just two people. <laughs> the, you know, the coming soons are all just similar types of movies. So I've been going and revisiting some movies that I overlooked, and one that I really enjoyed was called Extraordinary. Yeah, I saw that at the Overlook Film Festival last year. I, I really, really enjoyed it. It was not anything I was expecting, and I've been sort of singing its praises. But uh, other than that... Good film. Did you watch it through the Broad Street Theaters thing, or did you find it on your own? No, I, 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 I saw a video on demand recently, like last month. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because uh, the Broad Street Theater was... That was one of their movies you could stream online but buy a ticket to support the theater through oh wow oh it's a weird little program i didn't know that was even a thing not every theater's doing it i'll do that and i don't know if they're still doing it uh but i i know that broad was doing it for a while and you can if you go to kino lorber the uh you know the film distributor 
their website has this mm-hmm. massive list of all these independent films you can stream and then all these independent theaters you can support and you can you can basically mix and match you can kind of stream anything and then like send that ticket money to an independent art house theater so that could be that could be a great way to support the independent film economy i'm totally going to do that and then also i I, I had planned during this to, to shoot a pilot that was essentially going to be Parks and Rec disguised as a ghost hunting show. But uh, I initially wanted to call it Ghost Getters, but there is a ghost hunting outfit called that in a gag movie made by John Hader that's on Hulu <laughs> that I discovered. So that name's out. That's hilarious. Then uh, Joe Cardosi and Duncan Pace are going to be in it. They came up with Fright Club. But that's what the team in Sabrina the Teenage Witch calls themselves. So it's titled to be decided. But uh, that will be coming up uh, sooner than later, hopefully. That's not shot yet? No, we haven't shot it yet. You've got a a team and a script. Team and a script. 2021? 2021, probably, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Anything else you want to plug or shout out? Uh, No, other than your movie Laundry Day, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the very near future. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, its distribution deal contract is ending in July. Oh. I have a choice of re-upping, but I haven't decided. I'm on the fence. It's it's a big decision. Yeah. I could try to self-distribute it or find another distributor or maybe find a, a boutique label in New Orleans. You know, maybe a record label would want to help me Whoa. put it out for through the soundtrack and we could... You know, it's already in Louisiana Music Factory and stuff, but it'd be fun to have a local team behind it. But uh, on the other hand, it's kind of amusing to me that you can buy it in Taiwan now. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. I mean, we should explore this on a future episode. Yeah. It's funny, actually, because of the delay between recording and releasing these episodes, I actually realized that what I just said, I may have made this decision by the time this airs. (laughs) Okay. Oh, well, that's that's cool. Well, thank you so much. Certainly, Uh, thank you. You can stream Bad Religion. Bad Religion, Jesus. Listen to me. You can stream Bad Lieutenant Portacol, New Orleans, anywhere. Basically, it's on Prime. It's got Nicolas Cage. It's alternately exhilarating and bizarre and hilarious. And there's a lot of animals in it. Indeed. Two iguanas, tanks of goldfish, Japanese fighting fish. There's a stray dog and a dead alligator. (laughs) And a snake. (laughs) Cool. Thank you, John. Thank you. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.